1 Corinthians 1 and verse 17. This is the word of God. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood, they would not crucify the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, 
even the deep things of God. We give God praise and thanks for his gracious word, which alone is true. Out of all the wisdom of man and all the ideas and writings of man, this word alone is what we can trust. Now I want to look with you, especially at the verses which open chapter 2, that Paul tells the Corinthians that he did not come to them with excellency of speech. It says in, in our translation, your superiority of speech, that's usually translated excellence. It's really just impressive speech, Greek speech, like the philosophers of his day. He doesn't speak like that when he declared to them the testimony of God. But I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And he did not speak with persuasive human words, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. I chose this passage because it speaks about what is to be preached in the church. And in many ways, preaching is the most important thing in the church. I'm not saying that because it's myself that has to do it. But that is the truth of scripture. I think I mentioned that in my prayer, that it is the word of Christ alone that can make men live. And the word of Christ comes in its most clear and powerful and direct form when it is preached. Obviously, we can all read the Word of God, and we can speak about the Word of God, but God has ordained preaching as the way in which he declares his will to his church and to the world. Jesus himself was really a minister. He was a preacher. He was anointed to preach the Word. Jesus himself said that in his first sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth. He opened the scroll of Isaiah and found the passage. I think it's Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Jesus himself spent most of his time preaching. And obviously Paul did that too. This passage tells us what that should be like and what we should expect in the church in regards to this. There were problems in Corinth around this very issue. Corinth was a powerful, prominent city in the Greek Empire of its day, and was beginning to surpass Athens. It was the most important city. That's where all the ideas came from, the music, the culture, even the religion, and the philosophy, most importantly, for that is what the Greek glory did. I'm sure most of us know that. They gloried in their philosophy. They had very smart men in their culture, thinking men, intelligent men, who wrote extensively about philosophy, and about God, about the world, and about life, and what it was all about. And the Corinthians, though many of them <coughs> had been saved when Paul entered that city, and he spent 18 months in that city, preaching them and instructing them, you can see from the letter that there's still a problem there that they're holding on to their culture. And if you read this first letter to the Corinthians, there are big problems in this church. 
there's problems of worship, there are factions in this church. Some say we are of Apollos, some say we are of Peter, some say we are of Paul. But they're splitting off into groups, and the ones who think they're most spiritual, they try to be clever and they say we are of Christ. We are of Christ. So they're claiming they're not divisive. But Paul has received a report that that divisiveness is there. There was a problem of sexuality in Corinth. It was really like what we're experiencing today with the LGBT movement. That wouldn't have been unknown in Corinth at all. It was a licentious culture with prostitution and all of these things. And it's in that context that Paul preaches a gospel. And the problem is that though many of them had <coughs> received the gospel truly, and many of them had received the gospel at least formally, they'd become members of the church, they were part of this church, you can see clearly as you read it that all is not well. And you can tell by what Paul has to say to them, um, you can tell what, meant, what the, the center of the problem really is, and that is really that they boast in appearance, they boast in their pride, in their affluence, and in their philosophy. And it's hard to actually read. If you read 1 Corinthians, and then read 2 Corinthians, you can tell by the way Paul's heart is moved, and grieved, and he's in tears. You can tell um, what they're saying about Paul. You, you, you can infer it from how he has to respond to them. He, he says to them in one part of this letter, he says, you're saying that I robbed the church. So they'd obviously accuse them of that, that although Paul worked even with his hands and sought not to even take a pay from the Corinthians, many of them were saying that he's just a Jew who left Judaism and got involved in this movement because he thinks he can make money out of it. So obviously we know Paul wasn't like that, but it's amazing the idea that arises in these people's minds about Paul. They actually think he's there to rob them. And he says to them, the more I love you, the less I am loved by you. There are other issues too. They say about Paul, your letters are old. Your letters are strong, and you sound really impressive in your letters. But when we meet you and see you, you're pathetic. They actually said that about Paul. Your, your speech is impressive, but your bodily presence is contemptible. So that's what they were saying about Paul. They were basically saying, well, when he's out in Philippi and Rome and these places, and he writes to other churches, he's very bold. And, but when you meet him, he's not so impressive in person. And the reason that they were doing all of this is because Paul was correcting them. Paul was preaching to them. Paul was centering his message around the cross, and they didn't like that. It didn't agree with their philosophy. It didn't agree with their Greek affluence. It didn't agree with any of it. And when Paul gave them the message, when Paul wrote to them and pointed out what needed to change in these things, instead of them hearing it and thinking it through and comparing it with the scripture and saying, is this right? What they did was basically just a character assassination of Paul. That's what they did. Character assassination. Um, and that is obviously hurting Paul. These are two of his most passionate letters. And the biggest offense comes from his preaching about the cross itself. For in Greece, that's not popular. Paul preached it in Athens and Corinth, and people laughed at him. They laughed when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. And they certainly weren't impressed about the message of the cross. 
They wanted to know the great God of philosophy. And Paul came to them and said that God was in Christ and that he was crucified, that he was condemned and executed. And that to them is contemptible. That to them is that You imagine a Greek living in Corinth with lots of money, listening to the philosophers, uh, with an excellent house and a good job, and involved in their society, and confident and proud of what they are. And this Jewish rabbi from Israel comes to them and tells them that their only hope for eternity is that a Jewish man who they don't know was killed on a cross by Roman soldiers, and that that is your only hope. And you need to believe in him and love him and know him. To the Greek mind, that's just incompatible. They don't even know how that could be so. And that view in Greece filters into the church. And when we read chapter 1 and 2 there, you can see that Paul's having to defend that he's preaching this. They're basically saying, give us another message. We like Apollos better. We know that Apollos was a great public speaker. Apollos was from Alexandria. He was a trained Greek orator. And he became a Christian. And he became a preacher. And he preached in a very eloquent way. And the Greeks, when they heard Apollos, they said, he's far better than Paul. We can listen to this man. This man preaches into our context. This man uses the words we're used to. This man cares about the philosophy. And philosophers. And they, they used this new kid on the block, Apollos. They used him as an excuse to turn to the aging apostle and say, we're not going to listen to you anymore. Your message is pathetic. We can't listen to it. It doesn't have power. It doesn't have eloquence. It doesn't challenge us mentally and all of these things. And Paul says to them, I determine first you to know nothing among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul then comes across as very hurt in a lot of his letters, disturbed even, and in a wrestling match with himself, am I doing the right thing? With all this opposition and all of these things, Paul comes across as someone who is wrestling with his emotions. But the one thing we can say about him, and anyone actually that has Christ in them, that when, even when he's ground down to the foundation of the soul, he won't give up what's important at all. Though he says here, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. That's true of Paul. He didn't just saunder into Corinth, all, uh, confident as though he had it all figured out. He believes this, and he knows it's important, but it affects him emotionally. He feels weak. He's afraid. He has to go to God in prayer with his, even his fear of the Corinthians themselves. And he has to deal with that before God. And he says he's trembling. But there's one thing about him that I want to share with you, and that is really an expression of really what my own heart feels is important. And that's that we cannot give up. Verse 2. We cannot give up. Jesus Christ and him crucified. They want more from him. They're challenging him. They're making him afraid. They're opposing him. And all of these things. 
but uh, that weakness that Paul experiences when he says we are hard pressed on every side but not crushed we are cast down but we are not destroyed because we have a treasure in jars of clay that the excellency may be of the glory of God and not of man Paul doesn't care his body and his soul are stretched and, and scarred and beaten because deep within he has this one thing that he will never doubt and that is that the only solution to man's spiritual problems is always the same. It's always the same with all the noise and all the ideas and all uh, the papers and the books and the politicians and all the noise that we hear we shouldn't become confused by it because the solution is always the same. And that solution is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the message that he preaches. And he preaches Jesus Christ as a person. He preaches him crucified, which is his work, in verse 2. And in verse 4, he preaches him by the Spirit of God. So those are three things. The person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the Spirit of Christ. That's what Paul brings uh, to this church. Let's say a couple of things about each of these. The person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the spirit of Christ. The person of Christ. He preaches Jesus Christ. And he doesn't just preach him. He says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ. He doesn't just preach him, but he knows him, and he wants him to be known among them. He wants them to know him, because he's already come to know him. And, my brothers and sisters, there are so many things in the world that can be known. Just open up Google on your laptop. There's so much that can be known. Daniel prophesied about it, that in the latter days, the knowledge of many would increase. It's, there's too much to know, I'm sure you would agree. It's too much. And there's so many subjects that we can learn about. There's so many things that we can take interest in. There are so many political movements. There are so many um, arts. There are so many pursuits. There are so many people that we can know. There's just people everywhere. In this world, there is a lot to know. And most of these things, in their own place, are legitimate. But if we want to know them all, we only have so much time to be able to know so much of them. And what Paul's saying here is, there's a lot that you can know, there's a lot that can grab your attention, but in the last analysis, and in the eternal perspective, none of it actually really matters that much. There are things that do matter, take care of your body, you need to know something about that. You have to uh, raise your family and uh, take care of your marriage. You need to know something about that. You need to have friends. You need to love your neighbor as Christ commands us. You need to love the church and give a certain portion of your time to the church. All of these things are not only legitimate but required. But Paul's saying here that we should have one goal. He said that in Philippians. One thing I do one thing I do, I press on to the goal and the prize. We have to have one focus. And Paul's saying here, 
the focus of all that we can know must be Jesus Christ himself. That should define us as people. He's the one we need to search for. He's the one we need to pursue. And that is foolishness to the world. For a start, the world doesn't know where to find Christ. Many of us, even sitting here right now, may not know how to find Christ. <coughs> it's not so easy to find Christ. I know that in my own daily experience. It's not straightforward to find him. We know who he is. If I ask you where he is, you'll tell me where he is, you'll give me an answer. If I tell, ask you where is his church, you'll tell me where it is and what it is like. If I ask you what he has done, you'll tell me. But it's not so easy to know him and to be with him and to have a real, dynamic, interacting relationship with him on a day-to-day basis. It's just not that straightforward. But Paul's saying, Corinthians, you have come to believe. There are issues in your church. There are things that that need to be put right in this congregation in Corinth. But the only answer to it all is that you need to know Jesus Christ. We all need to know him or we can't live as God has called us to live in this life, my dear friends. Think about it this way. Christ is the person around which all of history revolves. This this world belongs to Christ. The stars belong to Christ. Space belongs to Christ. Everything that grows in this earth, everyone who is born (coughs) in this earth, belongs to Christ. Now you think about how the world views that. They do not see it that way at all. The world is just the world. Their lives are just their lives. Everything around them is just there and is there for the taking. And if we come to them and offer them Christ, they can't see how Christ fits into that. They, they may be depressed, they may feel empty, they may even feel guilty, and they may think Christ will deal with that, but they, they do not see all those other things as connected to him in any way. And that's what the devil has done to the world. He's turned it inside out. We don't naturally think all of this is about Christ. But the amazing and profound truth of Scripture is that it all is. Everything in this room belongs to him. The, the pew you're sitting on, the atoms that compose the pew you're sitting on, he created them. Even now, he's moving them. He's holding these things in place. Everything that your body is composed of right now, it was not only made by Christ, but he is governing it for his own glory. That is why you are here. The world doesn't know that, and the Greek doesn't know that, but the Christian must know that. Everything present now, it's only here for his sake. It's not for my sake or your sake, but for his sake. And not only just here now, but everything that's happened before, and everything that will happen in the next few hundred years, until whenever Christ returns. It is all there before Christ. As this apostle says, all things were made through him and were made for him. It has all been put in place by God and it's all been worked out by God and it's only for this 
person. Yes, we benefit from it. We are blessed by it. And the love of God comes towards us in Christ. But it is all for him. So when Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ, he's realigning the Corinthian the Corinthian congregation's minds here to get them back onto why they even exist. Their factioning against each other, their sin in the congregation that they would deal with. One man is living with his mother-in-law. They're suing each other in court. That's their too. There are marital problems. And there are women rising up in the congregation and wanting to preach and prophesy before the congregation. And in the Greek culture, that is allowed, so they're allowing that. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're not observing it properly. So many problems. There's people in the congregation who say that Christ didn't come back from the dead with a body, that he's only a spirit. That's in chapter 15. Now, Paul could just go through each of these and try and correct it before he does any of that. He says to them, you need to turn from all of this and you need to look at why you're even there. Why the church is even in Corinth, why you have been saved and why you even exist. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. So Paul is determined when he comes to them to preach to them, to preach this person. This person who not only rules over all things, but as we come to know him in the scriptures, is great and is worthy of our constant attention. This person, who even before he was born in this world, this person who is eternal, infinite, unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This person, who is the only begotten of the Father, who is there from all eternity in the beginning, in a communion with the Father. This person who is God. This person who is boundless. This person whose power is infinite and is to be feared and glorified and that the inhabitants of the earth are grasshoppers before this person. The second person of the Trinity. The Son of God. He's got to remind them that they can't look at Jesus as a man from Nazareth who was crucified. They have to look at him as that God person, manifest in the flesh, who was born in Nazareth and then was crucified. And that changes everything. We don't hope in a crucified man from Nazareth. That is futile. That saves no one. Hoping in a man from Nazareth. We don't hope in a man from Nazareth. We hope in the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, God manifested in the flesh, in Nazareth, and then going to the cross. It's God who goes to the cross. So when Paul says, Jesus Christ, he's not speaking about someone who's like us. He's not speaking about a man who we can follow and who will make us feel good and who will make our lives better. He's speaking about our Creator, He's speaking about the one whose eyes look upon our sin and he is filled with a sense of horror and he sees our sin as an abomination. But this person who was willing to look in us at the same time with love and to die for us, this person who did all this ascended to the Father and who reigns as God and man 
over all that we are and all that we see around us. Paul tells them, and it's my duty and my calling, not only to imbibe that in my own heart, but to preach it to you because it's your only true need. All your other needs are subject to that one need. I, there's many things I still don't know about you, and perhaps even vice versa, but I know your greatest need because it's my own greatest need, and it's the need that the scripture tells us. We all this morning have a great need, and it's to know the one who made us, the one who will judge us, the one who created our morality and will judge it, the one who saw the sin and who sent a sacrifice for that sin, and the one who reigns over us. Now, I know that you need to know that. No matter what position you're in or how old you are, you need to know, because naturally you and I don't want that, and we don't know it. You didn't naturally come to church this morning looking at everything with a very realistic sense of the fact that all of this we owe to God. All that you see around you, you owe in a higher way than you can comprehend to God. And he expects that from you. And the only way you can owe him that and give him that is through this person. This person who is the only begotten. The one in whom this apostle says dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The one who reigns on the throne now with all of that power and all the wisdom and power of God at his disposal. That is the one we need to know. And Paul um, delights just to say his name. We don't only need to know who he is, but we need to delight in him and come to know him. I'm sure we all know that, that there is a universe of a difference between knowing the Christ of history and knowing who he is and what he's done and coming to know him and loving what he's done. Anyone can believe that Christ truly came and that he did all these things. That is not the same as knowing him now. And Paul knows him and delights just to say his name. And that's one of the marks of a Christian. Not that we know about Christ, but that we delight in him, in his name and his work. Even in this letter, I took time the other day to just count how often Paul refers to Jesus in this one letter. And he he refers to him at least a hundred times. I counted a hundred and two times. Now he doesn't need to do that. They all know who he's speaking about, but he just keeps saying his name. The name of Christ, he says. The grace of Christ. In Christ, he says. The power of Christ. The cross of Christ. The gospel of Christ. The wisdom of Christ. Follow my ways in Christ. Look forward to the day of Christ. The power of Christ. There is the body of Christ. I am a slave of Christ. Do you sin against Christ? 
fulfill the law of Christ, the power of the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the table of Christ, the cup of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He's, he's not, um, he's not lying when he says, I determined to only know Jesus Christ among you. He can't stop speaking about Christ. And that will be a mark of us, of the one I described, and all his divinity and his reigning, and all that he is in himself. That is a mark of us, that we have come to know him, and are growing in our knowledge of him. If that name, and what it means, and all of his attributes there that I just read out to you, that these things matter to us, and we are pursuing these things. What is the solution to the factions in Corinth? It's all those things I just read. What is the solution to the sexual immorality? It's all of those things that I just read. What is the solution to their worship problems? It's all of the things I just read. The solution to all problems that arise in the church and in our souls and in our lives is this person and this name and a knowledge of all of these things about the name. If we turn to focus on that, it changes everything in our lives. He says in the other letter that I read to you, for me to live is Christ. I preach Jesus Christ to you because for me to live is Christ and for all of us it must be to live is Christ. Put your name in there. Don't admire Paul, but put your own name in there for John to live, for Sarah to live. Put your name in there. For this person to live is what? For this person to live is politics. For this person to live is food. For this person to live is travel. For this person to live is work. For this person to live my interests. What I like to do. For this person to live is family. For this person to live is friendship. For this person to live is, and you can fill in the blank. Is it true of you? Can I say of you? And can you say of me? For this person to live is Christ. The word is, isn't even there. We just put that in. The, the true translation is, for me to live, Christ. Christ. Paul determined not to know anything among these people with all their problems and complex philosophy and all their difficulties and all their knowledge. Paul comes to them and he says later, leave Apollos out of this. I'm not going to deal with Apollos now, he says. Apollos is not so as perfect as you think he is, Paul is about to write. But he tells the Corinthians the only thing that is the remedy and the life and the strength and power of your church is Christ himself. So I will only preach Christ to you. Christ in Genesis. Christ in Exodus. Christ in the Psalms. Christ in the prophets. Thundering even against the church. Christ in the wisdom books. Christ in the gospel. 
Christ through Paul, Peter and John. I will preach Christ to you. I have nothing else to give you except him. I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Him crucified, Paul says. That is what offended the Greeks. Crucified Jew. There wasn't anything worse in the Roman Empire and in the Greek world. There wasn't anything worse. A Jew, not only that, but a crucified Jew. Is he going to save Plato? Is he going to save Aristotle? Is he going to save all the rabbis? Is he going to save all the philosophers and the poets? Is he going to save all the politicians in Rome? Is he going to save Caesar? Caesar's powerful. Caesar has everything. Caesar has authority and riches and armies. And Paul goes into this empire and says, it's the crucified Jew that you need. How foolish it seems. How foolish it seems now to go around America and tell people, you need the true sacrifice, Jesus Christ. You need not only that, but the reformed Jesus Christ. We have to add that now, because there are so many other versions of Jesus. But how, how foolish it seems to go to people and say, you cannot be saved unless you follow the doctrines of the Reformed faith, and you come to know Christ through those doctrines. People say, that's proud. That, that's a proud thing to say. Who do you think you are? And these things are contemptible. The dry, dusty Calvinists, with their election and their atonement and substitutionary sacrifice, and they're singing the Psalms, and they're gathering in their small numbers. You know, they would rather go to Joe Lulstein's church, or a, a big church, where... We're not confined by all these things. But you've got to remember that Paul was in the same situation. Paul didn't go in and, in a nice suit and uh, smiling and uh, cracking jokes and really making everyone feel good about themselves. Read the letter to Corinthians. The Corinthians did not feel good about themselves when Paul was there. That is definitely not the case. Because he was coming to them with an offensive message. He says to himself that this is an offense, he says, what we preach. But, it's the only thing that can save us. So I said to you in my first point that you need to know Christ, you need to come to know him and grow to know him in your life and to say for me to live is Christ. But, that isn't the full message of salvation. Paul doesn't just preach Jesus Christ. But he almost, he always must preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. We cannot know Christ unless we first know him crucified. Can't. His name is Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It is foolishness and it is useless to talk about a person that we imagine called Jesus, unless it's really him and the one who was crucified and who gave his soul as a ransom for sin. I ask you if you know him that way. Because it's offensive and it's troubling. It is troubling when the Holy Spirit comes to you and 
tells you that the main basis on which you must know this person is how terrible you are as a person. That the only reason that this person is even needed is because of the awful state of your own heart. And we dress it up. We're very positive in the modern Western world. Most people are good and they mean well. That's what is said today. But we can we can observe how awful we actually are by looking at what God did to Christ when he was crucified to save you from your sin when he shrouded him in darkness and when he placed his hand as judge upon him and brought down the sword of judgment upon him and poured out an, an infinite wrath on the soul of Christ and and burned him, burned him up spiritually like a sacrifice until he had paid every last mite for every thought, word, and deed that we have ever had. We know that there are sins that are obvious that we can count and we can observe, but the truth is, most of what we say, do, and think has sin in it. That's what's awful. We be real. We have to be real about these things that even since we've been in even in this room, even now. I don't know what to say about it. I mean, I know as a, as a fact, some of us are sinning, sinning. We just, we have no conception of the glory of God and the perfection of God and the perfection of Christ. This sermon is even sinful. Because I'm not giving you Christ in the way that he wants to be given and portrayed to you. It falls way short of what's required We cannot know him unless we go to the cross and see him being punished for even what we call the ordinary things. We cannot know him unless we come and see him there in our place transferring his righteousness to us and our sin to him. We cannot know Jesus Christ unless we know him as the one dying for our sin. God wouldn't allow you near Christ unless it's on that basis. He's there for sinners. And it's only sinners who know him. It's only people who are conscious of their sin who know him. It's only those who are desperately wanting to be delivered and redeemed from and cleansed from their sin who really know him. So if someone tells you, I know him, I'm passionate, I, I'm passionate about the church, I'm passionate about mission, but that person is never talking to you about their sin. You can tell they have no sense of sin. You can tell that they're never upset and grieved by their sin. Don't believe them. It's not possible. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the place where we come to know him, at the foot of the cross. That is the place where God is revealed. That is the greatest revelation of God in all of time. If you want to know God, the maker, the creator, the one who reigns, the king of kings and the lord of lords, if you want to know him, he reveals himself there. That's where the veil is taken aside. That's where we see a tunnel out of this world into the being of God. 
That is where he reveals his righteousness. That is where he reveals his holiness. That is where he reveals his wrath. That is where he reveals his love and his mercy and his grace. It's all there flowing through the cross to the world. It's offensive. There are lots of people that will not listen to that. They don't want to hear that even in church. But I hope we all know that that is the place where God says, come and see who I am. That is where, as in verse 30 of the previous chapter, chapter 1 verse 30, that is where Christ becomes for us righteousness, sanctification and redemption. That's where it takes place. The pilgrim's progress has it. You must, you must pass the cross. You must come to the cross. You must be there and dwell there. You must deal with Christ there. This is who he is. Paul can barely say Jesus Christ without saying crucified. It's almost part of his name. That he appears on the throne of God even now as the lamb who was slain. As the one who has the marks of death upon him. We must go there. And God tells us, come to the cross. Come with your sin. And meet me there in my son. And he has been crucified for you. He has borne the penalty of all your sin. And you can leave that cross. You can leave that place. Righteous. Right with God. You leave that place with a father. You leave that place adopted. You leave that place full of joy and glory and power. That is where it all comes from. The cross isn't something that happened long ago that we must look back at and just believe it happened. It's as though the cross is still active even now. It's as though he was crucified even today and this morning. That that is the power of the cross. It's always effective before God. It's, it's always there. It's always the active thing that makes us right with God. It's there before God. He offered himself through the eternal spirit to God for our sins. And when we come to God, we must deal with the cross. And that message is what Paul says in this chapter is foolishness to the world. It's just utter foolishness. It's laughable. It's contemptible. They don't understand it, and Paul tells us that they wouldn't understand it at the end of chapter 2, verse 14. You know these words. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Can't know it. Man cannot know it naturally. It can't be understood. We look at it with dead eyes and we just can't see how it's relevant. We can't see how that is good and beautiful and powerful. It just, we, we just do not understand it. But not for you, Christian. Are you with me in your heart on this? That is not what this thing is to you. Far from being hard to understand and foolish, 
and contemptible and irrelevant and strange. This now is everything to you. And there's nothing else. It is to you what Paul says it is to him. The wisdom of God and the power of God. This is the dynamic force in your life. That Jesus Christ was crucified for you. And it's there as a centerpiece in your life. As a trunk in your life. That then defines everything else. And all that you are flows from it. All that you read flows from it. All that you say flows from it. All of your relationships flow from it. And everything in this congregation must flow from it. It changes everything. We think differently. We speak differently. We act differently. We love differently. We worship differently. If it's all done from a fresh sight of the second person of the Trinity pouring out his blood and dying for us and loving us in our place and taking our execution upon himself and doing it because he loves us and releasing us from all of that condemnation. Glory to God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you go there, when you go to Christ crucified and you're given a fresh sense of it and you're praying through that and it enlivens your mind and your prayers and your worship and everything in this church Everything will become different with the power of Christ flowing through us. But when it becomes vague and shrouded and dead and grey and far away from us and a forgotten thing, then we're just left for ourselves and our church and ourselves and our words and ourselves and our own passions and interests. That's what happened to the Corinthians. And Paul gives them the remedy, and it's my duty to preach that to you too. What will I preach to you? I'll preach what God tells me to preach and what we all need. This person, Jesus Christ, and the cross of Christ. Let me say a word as we leave all this, just to conclude. That there is the person of Christ and the work of Christ, but there is... The Spirit of Christ, which is the effect of all of this. And we have to leave it quickly as we close, but we're going to reach a crescendo here because this is really, this is where it hits us. We need to know everything I've said, but this is where it hits us. This is where it hits the ground running in a church. And it's that although Paul was in weakness and in fear, verse 3, and much trembling, when he gives them this person and all of his wondrous glory and he gives them his cross and the entrance into the kingdom through that sacrifice he says that that needs to actually get into you it needs to get into this congregation week by week and day by day my speech and preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom he says but in demonstration of the spirit and of power your faith should not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. The demonstration of the spirit and the power that is so sorely lacking in the western modern church and that the reformed church once knew and was filled 
with the glory of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, married to this message of the cross that obliterated um, opposing hearts and brought people into the kingdom. Thousands upon thousands and even millions in some parts of the world today that is still happening, but it is definitely not the case in the West. It's one thing to know Christ and know about him and to grow in your knowledge of him, to love his name and to think and speak about him. It's another thing to see him crucified and to go meaningfully to his sacrifice, to be refreshed by it, and to continue to feast upon Christ in that way. It's a whole other thing for that to be preached in your hearing, and for it to come with all of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a completely different category. You can know all that, and somehow have all that in the mind, and even have an affection for it in the heart, but it must come as Paul brought it to Corinth. He's telling them what he did here. I, he said, I didn't come and try and persuade you. I didn't come and try and just use logic by itself. I didn't come and use the right words and to try and speak to you in a way that was framed perfectly and acceptable to you. I came to you with the one thing that is needed in the proclamation of the gospel and in our Christian lives. And that is a demonstration of the Spirit and of His power. This, uh, this is missing. This is missing. This wonderful person. The third person. Who alone brings life in spirit and body. Who alone can fill the church with the glory of Christ. This person alone who can open the eyes of the blind. It's one thing to lecture. It's one thing to teach. It's one thing to speak about Christ. It's an entirely different thing to preach Christ. I wonder how many times I've actually preached because Biblically speaking, preaching means that you come imbibed with all the authority of Christ himself and you declare the gospel and souls are saved. Because it comes with all of the authority of the Spirit and no one can resist him. Paul says it's demonstrated here. That, that doesn't mean what we usually mean by it, that we just show it. I'm going to give you a demonstration of something you can take or leave it. This demonstration, he says, is that it's without doubt, it's irrefutable, and it cannot be opposed. He preached in Corinth in such a way that the people could not oppose what he was saying. That there are souls there who just buckle and break under that message, because it can't be refuted. Not because it's preached in a persuasive way, or the, the pastor's points are very clear. That isn't what makes it go into your heart. It sure will help. And I always endeavor to do better at it. But that is not what brings it into your heart. That is not what saves a sinner. A well-formed sermon that's preached properly and persuasively. What saves a sinner is the awesome power of the Holy Spirit who is pleased with the message and who goes with that message and who takes it and who stamps it on the heart of a sinner. There and then. And that person rises from the pew 
transformed. That person rises from the pew, born again, because the power of heaven and the kingdom of heaven has moved and filled that person. Paul doesn't want persuasive sermons. Paul doesn't want well-formed sermons, necessarily. He wants to see the Spirit at work. We want to see the Spirit. I want to see the Spirit at work here. It's our only hope. I told you your only need was Jesus Christ. Maybe that was inaccurate, because the other need is the Spirit of Christ. We need Him here. We should not grieve Him. We should not oppose Him. We should not sin against Him. We should not take Him for granted. We need Him here. If He is not here, we are just another gathering of formal people who follow an old writing and who believe it's true and who talk to one another and then leave. What Meadville needs, the dead town of Meadville, the dry spiritual desert of Meadville, the only thing it needs is the Spirit of God. That's the same need as Jerusalem did and all these places. This town cannot change, it cannot be saved. Nothing good can happen in this town spiritually unless the Holy Spirit comes and transforms this town into something that it's not. In the great, irrefutable, inarguable demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. That's what I must come up these steps with. That's what you must pray for as you come into church each week. That when we know Christ crucified and his grace flows to us from there and the spirit flows to us from there, that we come into this place with our eyes fixed on Christ who is filled with the spirit, who pours out the spirit and who is the power and wisdom of God. So you want to know what to expect and what what a minister should do and what we must come here to hear. What we need is the power of God, the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. That is why I am here. That is what I want to share with you as we begin this together. You want to know what I am about. If you want to know why I carry out the ministry, it is because I have that in mind. Do you want to see the power of God in this place? Will you pray to see the power of God in this place? Will you pray for me? On a Saturday, on a Sunday morning, will you pray? That is my prayer for all of you in Christ, that you be filled with him constantly, renewed each day. That is what I pray for our gatherings together, that it wouldn't be (coughs) about us at all but that it would be about him. May God give us the grace to do that and to pray.
at these things.